You're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this episode, our guest is Chris Katowski, Managing Director and Senior Analyst at Oppenheimer. And our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking. This episode was recorded on November 8, 2022. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to our episode called Financial Institutions, Rate Hikes, and the Winners and Losers. I'm your host, Jane Ross, and we're here with Chris Katowski, Managing Director in Equity Research, covering financial institutions for Oppenheimer. Now, we all know that financial institutions are the lifeblood of the global economy and that persistent rate increase have caused a shock to the system. So, Here, we'll talk about the financial players, the big banks, the private equity companies, and others, and who we expect to thrive and who we think will be more challenged in this transitory time. And of course, we'll talk future and discuss other potentially disruptive forces like fintech and how technology may or may not be a real game changer for this sector. To lead us through all of this, we have Chris Katowski, the Managing Director and Senior Analyst at Oppenheimer, covering banks and private equity companies. Over the years, Chris has received much acclaim for his work with frequent representation on institutional investors' annual ratings. So off we go with a warm welcome to Chris. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Okay. So it's been such an uneventful year in your space. Maybe we can start off with kind of a macro orientation look at where we are today. Yeah. Well, you know, for most of the decade after the great financial crisis, I kept on saying that uh, the banks were kind of like pet rocks. They just didn't do that much. We had two or 3% loan growth every year, and we had you know, interest rates fluctuating between zero and two or two and a half percentage points. And that all came to a, a crashing end in COVID. And, you know, it's I, I like the example I use is it's like that when you break a neatly racked set of cue balls and they all start flying in different directions. And so, you know, right after COVID, you first had big pay downs of loans and interest rates going down. And now, Everybody is borrowing a lot of money. Year-over-year loan growth is 11% right now. You know, interest rates are up 375 basis points on the year, and this is after, you know, decades of never moving by more than 25 basis points. Wow. So with all of that and the change has happened so quickly, maybe we can start on a positive note with who's benefiting here? Well, I'd say most of the big banks are benefiting. In the third quarter, Net interest income, which is the key revenue source, it's about two-thirds of the big bank's revenue. Net interest income was up 12% quarter over quarter, not year over year, but quarter over quarter. And that's the combination of loan growth and the benefit of rates. And it's not like the banks are getting some windfall. The, The system was designed kind of with positive rates in mind. 
that is, uh, you know, going way back, centuries back, the deal has always been that banks get float on people's money and that there is a positive interest rate. In most ways, it was the last decade that was uh, abnormal and the kind of rate environment that we're entering into is now much more normal. But with all this, you know, the banks are getting nice top line growth and they're solidly profitable, kind of low to mid teens uh, return on equity. And so it's a, they're in a good position right now. However, looking ahead, I think there's kind of a consensus view that we're going to hit a recession at some point, which is a difficult environment for the big banks, right? The problem is the rates are supposed to go up in order to slow the economy so that inflation isn't so hot. And a slowing economy means typically more people unemployed and more unemployed people means less there are people who can't pay their debts. So it is typically block booked with rising loan losses. But it's interesting, if you look at the last three recessions, it was only in the last one, the great financial crisis, where the bank stocks bottomed late in the, in the recession. In the 1990s, which was the first recession that I experienced, uh, the banks actually bottomed right at the beginning of the recession. And in the 2000 recession, which is, in my view, the most like the current one, because it, it was kind of technology led, and, and this one is too, the bank stocks actually bottomed about 15 months before the recession hit. And if you had uh, waited for the recession to hit, you would have moved, missed one of the best moves in financial stocks in their you know, last 30, 40 years. Wow. So, okay. So you would liken where we are now kind of most closely. I, every time is different, I know, but with the recession in 2000. So put that into context for us with where the stocks are trading and, and valuations, the big banks I'm talking about with that in mind. Yeah, I think the big banks are already reflecting kind of a, a recessionary valuation. We're at about a 52% relative PE. Historic average is somewhere between 70 and 75, and most of the time it ranges between 60 and 80. So we are we are cheap on any kind of metric that you look at. And, you know, what I would say, the reason why I say this recession or this potential recession reminds me a lot of the 2000s is that it's hard to point to a whole lot of stuff that we have too much of. Whereas in 1990, it was easy to say there are too many office buildings, too many shopping malls, and you know, too much commercial real estate. In uh, 2008, it was easy to say too many houses, uh, right? And just ask yourself, what is there too much stuff of here now? It's not like there's too many cars on the lot. It's There's a housing shortage. It's maybe office buildings and retail, but that's that's been on the ropes for almost a decade now. So that's kind of washed through the system pretty much. But if you look at, you know, where where's their stress in the economy, it is definitely in the tech sector. And just like in the early 2000s, it's that you had these incredible valuations that are coming back down to earth. And for the banks, the good thing is that they're generally not big lenders to tech companies. Tech companies are not big borrowers historically. Okay. So the the structural things that we were worried about historically, you're not seeing that this time around. And I guess balance sheets are in pretty good shape. Balance sheets are amazing right now for the banks. And, you know, we didn't have the equivalent of the current CET1 ratio, which averages around 12 or 13 percent. But if you had calculated that number in 2006, it would have been around 4 percent. 
So, you know, the capital levels are in big round numbers, triple what they were uh, pre-great financial crisis. And then you've been going through these annual stress tests where the Fed, you know, marks down all the assets that they think are risky. And, you know, as a consequence of that, you know, the banks have stopped making it. And I've seen the flow of those kinds of risky loans go out of the banking system and to the alternative asset managers and the private equity companies like Apollo and Blackstone. And you can see it also in the early delinquency numbers that the FDIC publishes every quarter. And the early delinquencies, so this is just 30 to 60 days. This is people who've just missed one one payment. Which should be kind of a forward indicator, right? Exactly. It's the early warning system, right? And they are still at a level that is like a quarter to a third of where they were between 1995 and 2007. So credit picture is really looking still great. That is interesting. Okay, so you you provided me with a nice little segue here. You mentioned the alternative lenders. You know, you've made the point here that the banks you think are in good shape and that the valuations of bank stocks look pretty good. What about the private equity players and competition from them? And how does that segment look from a market perspective? Well, I think they have benefited from a whole multitude of secular changes. Let's, let's before we get into it, who are we talking about with the private equity companies? We're talking about companies like Blackstone, Apollo, KKR, Carlisle, Ares. Those are the big players. And, you know, when I started out uh, being a bank analyst in the mid 80s, all the big financial institutions kind of had their lane. There were banks that made loans funded with deposits. There were insurance companies that sold insurance liabilities and bought stocks and bonds with them. There were traditional asset managers, mutual funds that would buy stocks and bonds. And there were investment banks that you know, mainly sold stocks and bonds, but also tried to get into the game of being private equity players every now and then. And well, what, what have we learned since the 80s? We've learned, you know, from Lehman, we've learned that it's kind of stupid to have uh, big venture capital investments funded, you know, on a balance sheet that's mainly funded with repos. We've learned that it's stupid to have illiquid bank loans funded with deposits that can flee any time. We've learned that insurance companies are generally terrible pickers of stocks and bonds, and that they just don't have the money to invest in the expertise to, to run that. And we've learned that the kind of traditional mutual funds have in many cases become kind of index huggers and and are delivering commoditized return. And so you have loans coming out of the banking system. You have assets in the insurance companies that need to be or are better managed by somebody else. You have investors tired of commoditized returns looking for greater returns elsewhere. And you have all the banks that were uh, investment banks that were trying to become private equity players kind of retreating. And so it it has led to a great growth in in private assets. And, you know, the the other statistic I'll throw out there is in in the 1990s, we had over 8,000 public companies and we're down to around 4,000. So all these markets have led to tremendous growth in private markets, both equity. Traditionally, it was all equity, but now it's debt and equity, and it's also real estate and infrastructure. And just to put a number on it, you know, back in 2006, only one of the private equity companies that I covered 
really had a, a credit business and that was Apollo. And, you know, now they all have it. And between them, they easily have a trillion dollars of credit assets, which, uh, you know, is a, would be a pretty darn big bank if you, you had it. And the other thing I'd say is these companies are built to be able to take the credit risk because the way the funds are structured is that, you know, the, the credit manager has three years or four years to put the money to work. And then the investors will get it when the when when the manager gets it back. So there's never this kind of insecure funding that the traditional financial intermediaries were always vulnerable to. Well, but there is a reckoning if investments were made at lofty valuations at the top of the market, right? And isn't that a bit of a worry with the private equity guys? I mean, bad investing is always a worry, right? If you if you are a fund investment manager and and you don't invest well, then you know you're not going to have a thriving business. These companies have an amazing track record through the years. That said, it is in fact true, though. If you look at the way private equity returns are measured, they call it IRR by vintage year. And so, for example. 2006, the year, you know, about a year and a half before, two years before the great financial crisis hit, that's probably the worst uh, private equity vintage year in recent memory. And that's because, you know, the, the, the asset managers put, put money to work and, and it was mainly in place when the great financial crisis hit. So that wasn't a particularly good vintage year. But it's interesting, the money still beat the public markets. And, you know, I think the the investors in the private equity funds have come to realize that there are going to be good vintage years and bad vintage years, that the best vintage years are the ones that are raised immediately after a recession, not immediately before a recession. And so, you know, the way the LPs put money to work is they try to decide, do they in general believe in the asset class that over time private equity will outperform? And if they do, then they'll have an allocation to it every year. And they, they won't get bent out of shape about any given vintage year not being quite that good. So as you look at kind of that battle of the Goliaths, the big banks versus the private equity guys, they both have pretty resilient business models. They both have, you know, attractive balance sheets. Where are you guiding investors as far as where you think we're going to get performance from these stocks looking ahead? Yeah, on the bank side, I would say currently in the current environment, the, the place to go is the banks with the big branch systems, because that's where depositors are most likely to just leave the money in there. You know, if you think about it for a, a typical family that keeps like four or $5,000 in their checking and savings account, and they have a couple thousand dollars coming in every month, on direct deposit and a couple of thousand dollars a month going out on on bill pay, you know, they're not going to be too twitched about getting the last basis point on their rate. They're getting a lot of services. They're getting branches and cash machines, bill pay and checks. And whenever they need a branch, they get to walk into one. So, you know, those customers are really paying for the service and you'll get a bigger benefit from a, a rising rate environment. By con contrast, like, Corporate treasurers, they're going to watch every single basis point and they're going to want to make sure that they get paid for their for their deposits. And even like wealthy clients, wealth management clients, they, they might not be on top of it as on top of it as the corporate treasurer is. But 
if if you're not paying them the decent rate uh, within you know they'll they'll notice it within a couple of weeks or months so within the bank group you want to focus with those that have that infrastructure and the branch system what about amongst the private equity players where are you focused so in the banks my favorites would be bank of america and us bank those are the ones with big branch systems well run companies getting nice leverage right here right now from what we see among the private equity companies i'd focus in particular on kkr and the reason why i would focus in particular on this one is that they got well a it's a good company great company great track record great mix of business i think really well managed but b they also just got lucky in that they raised all their flagship private equity funds last year and that was again it's a, it was just a coincidence but at the current valuation that you're paying for KKR, you're getting roughly $4 of dry powder. That means investable equity, callable money that they can put to work. You're getting $4 of dry powder for every dollar that uh, you're paying for the asset management business. And that's on top of all the money they have in the ground and all the money they may raise in the future. You're getting Four dollars of money that they can put to work, and remember, they're going to get. They they will most likely get about twenty percent of the upside on all that money. Wow! Yeah, that's compelling. Well, I guess we should also touch on briefly the investment banks. This is a difficult environment in terms of deal flow. M and A is down. How are you looking at the investment banking universe? Yeah. You know, the, the interesting thing is I've never seen, we, we get to track these numbers from a company called DealLogic, which adds up all the volumes and so on. And it's quite extraordinary when you see, you know, total equity underwriting volume is down 75 or 80% year on year. IPOs are down 95%. We're definitely in an extreme environment in terms of underwriting currently. You know, that said, my general view is that investment banking, they always call it the investment banking window, and it opens and it closes. And the thing I would say is it never stays shut because sooner or later, the companies just need the money. There are companies being formed by venture capitalists literally every day of the week. They go out, they spend the money the venture capitalists gave them, and at some point, they will then either need to raise more money or... They will need to restructure, sell themselves to somebody else. There's only so long that you can go without using investment banking services. And so, you know, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I would bet sometime before the end of 2023, we're going to see that window open again. And th there'll be a bunch of companies that, that will need money. I can see this in some of the companies, you know, my fellow analysts cover here. The companies went public a year or two ago, and uh, they still have, you know, a year's or two worth of cash burn left. But at some point, they're going to need to do something. And so, you know, I, I think that that is going to happen. You know, the thing I like about the big commercial banks, right, is it's right here, right now. It's happening this quarter and next quarter. We saw it this quarter. We'll see it again next quarter. You know, with the investment banks, it's likely to happen sometime in the next three, four, five, six quarters, but 
you, you really don't know when. Well, moving away from right here, right now on this podcast, we like to talk future. It's the title of our, our series. And I've done other episodes with your brethren who have argued that fintech could pose a real disruptive risk to these entrenched, established financial institutions. And so I'm curious about your take on that. If you see technology and those players as, you know, systemic risks to the established players. Well, I mean, they've definitely developed some really innovative technology. Look at Square and the dongle and, you know, that that was brilliant. And the bank could have come up with that and they did. And so... You know, I think you have to always be aware of that and, 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 and look at these developments and, you know, certainly follow them closely. That said, you know, most of the fintechs focus on payments and payments is a relatively small part of what banks get paid for. And, and just to put a number on it, for example, credit card fees are about 5% of the revenues for the companies I cover. Net interest income, on the other hand, is about two-thirds. And in order to earn that net interest income, what you actually have to do is you have to take customers' money, you know, not just move money from customer A to customer B. That's what that's what every fintech wants to do, is they want to move money and take a toll. In order to get the, earn the kind of money that the banks are earning, you actually have to hold a depositor's money. You have to take all the regulation that comes with that you have to then put that money to work at a positive spread. And you can only do that by taking one of three risks. You're either taking credit risk, illiquidity risk, or interest rate risk, or some combination of all three. Taking those kinds of risks is the only way you will really eat into what banks do for a living. And most fintechs don't want to have anything to do with that. It's interesting, you know, because you think of all that innovation, but you're arguing that it's innovation in this space that's sort of easily commoditized. It's interesting. Well, you know, I mean, the banks invented credit cards. And uh, so, you know, payments is a important business. But again, banks get paid most of what they get paid for taking and managing risk. Right. Well, we've certainly covered what I was hoping to cover here. I'll leave you with any last word if you think there's anything that we missed here or anything else that you wanted to. Well, no, I would say just, you know, banks have become very much de-risked. As they've become de-risked, they've become on some level less exciting. It's been slower growth. Their world has gotten smaller but safer. And, you know, for the private equity companies, the world has gotten a lot bigger. And so, you know, I think growth-oriented investors probably would want to be overweight the the kind of uh, alternative asset managers, the, the KKRs and Apollos and Carlisles of the world. And, you know, I think if for growth-oriented investors, that's where they should go in financial services. Perfect, Chris. Thank you so much. This is just so well-timed with rates moving and everything going on. This was a really, really helpful, timely conversation. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode. And remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.